Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallton, and today we are going to talk to historian Cole Harris about his newly released book, Reflecting on the Historical Geography of Canada. Professor Cole is Canada's most renowned historical geographer. He holds the Order of Canada in recognition of the impact of his work. He is currently Professor Emeritus at the University of British Columbia. Since receiving his PhD in 1964, he's written numerous articles and books on the historical geography of Canada. His first book was on the seigneurial system in Canada in 1966. He's also author of one of my personal favorites, The Historical Atlas of Canada, Volume 1, From the Beginning to 1800. In 2003, his book on the making of the reserve system in British Columbia was published. Today, we're going to talk to him about his newest book, Abounded Land, Reflections on Settler Colonialism in Canada, published by UBC Press. Cole, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to do so. Now, your book struck me as a curated version of your life work. Is this an accurate description of the book? And if not, how would you describe it? I would say it's partly an accurate description. A lot of my work is much more empirical than this. It gets very close to the ground and into the archives and is, you know, is, is, is detailed and local and, and tight. But this is my more speculative writing. It's uh, my more general thoughts about the nature of settler colonial societies, about the nature of the powers that are embedded in such societies to dispossess indigenous people, about the effects of that uh, dispossession. And my more general thoughts about the, as it were, the, the pattern of this country, the, the spatial st structure of Canada and the implications of that. So it's, it's a generalized and in, in a weak sense of the word, my more theorized writings about Canada. So in that sense, it is a compendium, but it's a compendium that leads off a, a, a great deal of more grounded and more empirical work. Well, it's a compendium, but you had to select uh, a very few articles and chapters among the many that you've written in the past. How did you go about selecting them? It's a good question. I've wondered about this for some time. Uh, basically, it, I suppose it's it's somewhat chronological. I start with the uh, well with the first encounters of Europeans and Indigenous people. It was an encounter that was repeated over and over again across the span of this country. But for the most part, of course, we have no records of those, those, those initial meetings. But there is one in the Fraser Canyon in the early 19th century, and I, I start with that. I also, in this early section where I'm dealing with beginnings, treat cartography, which is one of the first European attempts to make sense of this new land, to get it into a register that Europeans could begin to understand and could transport information however simplified, from one side of the Atlantic to the other, and use it in imperial calculations uh, there. So I deal with, with, the, with car the cartographic representation of early Canada. And then I had to deal, I thought, with, with disease, which really runs across this country and underlies everything that happened subsequently. 
Smallpox is in this country awfully early. We don't know when, but probably in the 16th century, certainly very early in the 17th century, in the West with devastating effects by the 1780s. And uh, the, the population, the indigenous population of Canada is diminished by a figure that we can never establish with any final certainty, but probably in the order of 80 to 90%. Native uh, populations are living in shock. Uh, after this uh, this carnage, so I start there, and then I then it seemed it, it seemed important to deal with some early examples of settler colonial societies, and as my work on 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 such societies began with the Acadians, I include my most recent piece of writing on on Acadia, and what I was trying to do, of course, was to establish. What survives the French ways? What has changed? And to what extent is a, is a somewhat different form of French life emerging on, in a different environment, in a different, differently contextualized, in a whole different geographical arrangement of people and space on, on, the, uh, on the marshes around the, uh, around the Bay of Fundy? And I was doing the same thing, or trying to do the same thing, with the migration of French Canadians out of the St. Lawrence and into the edge of the Canadian Shield in the early and mid-19th centuries, when the advantages, such as they were, that early French settlement had known along the lower St. Lawrence, where there was agricultural land that, to be sure, forest had to be cleared, but it could be cleared with enormous amount of work, and, uh, and land brought into production, and it could support peasant families. But when that settlement gets into the fringe of the Canadian Shield, which it does in the early 19th century. It's another story altogether. The land is exceedingly harsh. The growing season is, is, is too short for, for many of the crops of the St. Lawrence Lowlands. And there's an awful lot of competition for work. The commercial capital is there in the form of the, of the timber trade. And French Canadians are competing with Irish labor. The, um, the, the value of work is uh, wages for work are exceedingly low, and the conditions, therefore, in Petit Nation, Louis Joseph Papineau's scenery, by the way, the conditions of work there are enormously difficult. Life was difficult, so I deal with that. Um, the colonization of this country is by no means simple. People are struggling with it. The land is harsh, and I've never seen it harsher than I saw it in Petit, in Petit Nation, and in uh, in Mona Township. There, the place was settled by uh, by immigrants from from Ulster, and uh, I argued there that um, they bring a very strong Calvinist ethic of uh, of work and of uh, of progress tied to uh, God's judgment about who is who is acceptable and who is who is not, um, and that I argue that the uh, that the experience of pioneering in in Mona Township. Um, on the Niagara Escarpment, about 50 miles north of, of, of Toronto, that it tended to um, to reinforce these values. That those who, who who worked their way through this horrendous challenge of taking on the, the taking on the forest, that they were um, well, that their values were strengthened thereby. So I started with these these three examples. Then I went on in the next section to to treat this in a more theoretical way trying to deal with the general change in social organization and in culture that was associated with the transplantation of Europeans from one environment uh, to another. 
And I'm, uh, I'm thinking largely of this country, of course, but not entirely. The forays here into New England, the forays into Dutch uh, uh, South Africa. It seems to me there are some generalizations that can be drawn out of this settler experience that apply to settler colonial uh, situations elsewhere. So that's what I was trying to do there. And I was also interested in the particular shape of this country. This country is a, is a above all, is a geographical creation. It's a product of a particular arrangement of people on the, on the, uh, the land. Very bounded space, bounded by rock and coal to the north, bounded by a, uh, an international border uh, to the uh, to the south, and composed of several quite different types of, of, of settlement, towns, work camps, uh, countrysides, and the arrangement of these different, um, these different uh, modes uh, of uh, uh, generic types of early Canadian settlement has an enormous bearing on the nature of this country. So I, I tried in a general way to describe, to describe that. And then, um, my own life, at, I, I am a British Columbian. I was born and raised in British Columbia, but at the time I was teaching at the University of Toronto. And then I came back to, uh, to UBC and taught there for the rest of my career. That turned me towards British Columbia and uh, to, this, to uh, a number of books and a lot of writing on this province. And again, the same questions of just how a, a settler society recomposes itself in, in, in a different space. What powers underlie the dispossession of, uh, of uh, Indigenous people and how are they related to each other? And what uh, the implications of, the, of that dispossession are uh, for, uh, uh, for the Indigenous people who are on the receiving end of, uh, of those powers. So I turned to all of, uh, of, of that and, um, and again, picked out from among quite a lot of writing in this general area, picked up some of the pieces that seemed to me to be of more general and more sort of theorized interest. And then at the very end of this, well, the reviewers of this manuscript told me that I really should try and do something with, um, with the relationship between settlers and indigenous peoples. And so with some, hesitation and, 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 and eventually not easily at all, because I'm not a student of contemporary Canada and I'm not a student of Indigenous society. I did write a final postscript that tried to say some things about how, how settlers and Indigenous people are with each other now. So there's the structure of this book in a, in a general way. Well, thank you for that. And I think that really helps us understand um, why you did what you did. In the introduction on page nine, you provide a one-sentence description on settler colonialism that I think is both succinct and evocative at the same time, and I quote, settler colonialism requires land and takes it from indigenous peoples who had usually used it for thousands of years, knew it intimately, and claimed it as their own, a displacement that raises enduring moral issues. Now, settler colonialism, of course, is very uh, much used by scholars today in Canada. Um, but it seems to me that you were one of the first non-Indigenous scholars in Canada to grasp its significance in terms of the history of countries with, uh, with histories that are similar to Canada's. Am I wrong? 
Well, I think when I began, I was uh, the term was hardly in the air. I was writing on settlers. I was writing on colonialism, but I hadn't quite used the term settler colonialism. It's as one gets into the more international literature and one deals with with colonialism in its in its different manifestations that you realize how how much difference there is between those those colonies where there is a, a small powerful managerial elite backed by a military force but not much else when you take away the uh, military support then the uh, the society reverts to its former inhabitants. It reverts to its indigenous population. For analytical purposes, I think it's important to make the to make the distinction. And in the case of settler colonialism, of course, if you are, it, it, there 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 are likely to it is worth considering. This is the way to put it. It is worth considering that there are likely to be some fair similarities between different settler colonial experiences in, in, in various corners of the world. So my writing is tends to, I tend to write or try to write in such a way that those, some of those similarities can be picked up on and, and considered in other contexts. You describe maps as geographical generalizations, powerful simplifications used by Europeans to enable, and I quote you, to enable Europeans to explore, claim, and often colonize land they knew next to nothing about. I too have been drawn to historical maps as a way of understanding the mindset of Europeans who drew them. And I spent a lot of time on Peter Fiddler's sketch maps for the Hudson's Bay Company. It helped me not only understand what Peter Fiddler, his mindset, but his relationship with indigenous people uh, that he encountered uh, while working for the Hudson's Bay Company. So what I want to ask you is what drew you to maps originally? And of the historical maps that are reproduced in this book, what is the most fascinating one from your perspective? Well, I am a historical geographer, Greg, and it's pretty hard to uh, to think about the world and to write about it without paying some attention, at least for me, without paying some attention to maps. Uh, with regard to the early maps in, uh, in uh, reproduced in this book, the one that's on the cover by Pierre de Sellier is a most magnificent map. Um, it's got a, a, a turtle on it that looks something like a dreadnought. It's billowing, uh, I guess it's water or smoke. Uh, I mean, it has unicorns, it has polar bears, uh, it's a it's a cartographic triumph in a, in a way. I tell my cartographic friends that Canadian cartography has diminished steadily since 1550 when Pierre de Sellier created this marvelous map. The other great map in the, that I discuss in this uh, in this uh, chapter is of course Champlain's map of 1632. Champlain was brilliant, and he's created a map of uh, of um, eastern northeastern North America that is a remarkable geographical digestion of a huge territory, uh, the large part of which Champlain has never seen. He's relying on information, uh, by and large, from indigenous people and putting together a, a synthesis that is, uh, for, for 1632, is absolutely extraordinary. But of course, to come back to the, the beginnings of your comment, what is going on in all of this mapping is a translation of the map. Of, of, of the surface of the earth from one form of knowledge uh, to another. 
uh, to a form of knowledge that Europeans could begin to get a hold of. The, the Europeans coming to North America, of course, encountering native people who've lived in situ for hundreds and th or thousands of years. They knew the land intimately, and Europeans have no capacity to reproduce the intimacy of that indigenous knowledge. They can't begin to do it. What they can do is create stark, simplified outlines. The, but these outlines, by and large, eliminate native knowledge. They eviscerate the land of its of its. Uh, of its uh, previous knowledge. But what? But those outlines, they, as with de, de Sellier, those outlines, they go back to high places. This, will, this de Sellier's map is, goes back to the King of France. It, it is used in geopolitical calculations. It bears on what the French are going to do in, in, in North America. And so cartography has a way of, of, of becoming a tool, a powerful tool, of, of European imperial and colonial conquest. So you've got uh, three chapters, as you've mentioned, on early settlements. That is the Acadian settlement in the marshlands of today's Nova Scotia. You have the French-Canadian settlement in the Ottawa Valley. Uh, and you have the Ulster-Irish settlement of Mono Township, just north of today's Toronto. I know that each of these settlements uh, had historically unique aspects, but can you describe what was common to all three? Sure, and I, I already have to some, to some extent. Uh, these are all cases of people of European background moving into non-European space, settling there, and trying to and turning that space into something that they can use. It's an arduous process. In the, in the case of the Acadians, it turns around building dikes to keep out the surging, the, the surging tides of the Bay of Fundy. In other cases, it involves clearing, clearing land, taking a forest away and replacing it with farms, with fields. It's an arduous killing process. Many people die in the, in, in the, the transition. But overall, it is a transition that is, that is being made, at least in pockets. And the question that I'm raising throughout all of these writings is what is happening to the societies that have come into these places. You can't be the same person quite, the same society quite, in different places. What is the nature of the social and cultural change that is, uh, that is going on? Um, it's one thing to talk about, to say that, to say that there's bound to be change, but that isn't terribly helpful. What one needs to do is to be more precise. What is the specific nature of change? What, what elements of European society and culture are being modified? And why, why are they being modified? Where are the pressure points? Um, so what I'm fishing for in these, in these chapters are some, some, at least some tentative answers to these, these questions, these broad questions about social and cultural change. So I think, I mean, I think it's fairly clear to most of us that, I mean, we all come out, almost all of us, come out of immigrant backgrounds. And if we go back to the places where our ancestors have come from, we're usually aware of where we've come from, all right. And we, and we recognize some elements of ourselves there, but we know that we're not now people of those places. We're not, things have changed. And this was true of the Acadians. It's still going on. I, mean, I live in Vancouver, a polyglot place composed of people from all over 
all over the world. The processes that I'm dealing with in Acadia in a different context are taking place here in Vancouver in, in 2021. So the, it's important to try and untangle this just a little bit and figure out if, if there are some useful generalizations that can be made. And that's what these chapters are about. I understand that your research on Mono Township started uh, as a bet with two of your fourth-year <laughs> students at the University of Toronto in the early 1970s. Tell us more. Well, I, I had the great good fortune of teaching a fourth-year course to only two students, and so what was I going to do with them? Um, and uh, I, I decided that we would... Uh, that, I would wager with them that we could take any old township in Ontario and write an, a, an article that would uh, be acceptable for in a good academic journal. And uh, so we looked at them. I, I had recently arrived in Toronto. I didn't know anything about early Ontario. We looked at the, uh, at the map and the names of the townships, and there north of us, not far from the town of Orangeville, was the, the township of, of Mono. M-O-N-O. -O. And I thought, there's the township. We'll take the most monotonous township we can find and we'll see what we make of it. We got up there and we found it wasn't Mono Township at all. It was Mona. It was broad O. It was Irish. Uh, we got into the cemeteries uh, to the extent that people indicated where they come from. It was clear that they, this, this place was settled out, of, settled out of Ulster, overwhelmingly out of, uh, out of Ulster. So that led us into, a, uh, into the literature on, uh, on early 19th century Ulster, on the pressures that were pushing people out of, uh, of Ulster, the intense pressure on land. The value of land had skyrocketed. The value of labor had fallen to almost nothing. The, uh, the lives that had been earned by, with a cow, with a loom, and half an acre of land uh, were no longer viable as, as industrialization was uh, replacing hand, hand weaving. And uh, people, people were increasingly, I mean, just lives were desperate. The Irish famine was, was around the, uh, the corner. The two million people would die. And... Um, and Mono Township was an outlet. But as I said, said earlier, it seemed to me that in some basic ways, elements of, uh, of uh, the, uh, the value system that underlay Ulster were reproduced and intensified in, uh, in, in Mono Township. Also, I felt that you know, what, what we found in Mono was not only a transformed culture, but also a transformed land. The, the land was damaged. The land had been overcleared. Um, stretches of, uh, of sand that had been, uh, been windblown sand in immediate post-glacial times 10,000 years ago and then had been covered by, uh, by trees had been opened up again. The wind had got at that, that, that land and it was blowing around again. And uh, so it seemed to me that, I mean, in some ways, the, you know, the slums and tenements of Manchester and Liverpool and the denuded hills of Mono Township, the same cause, same cause. I mean, we had we had a lot of fun with Mono Township. It was uh, it's fascinating place, totally totally fascinating place. And we did we did write a, a paper that uh, that we were eventually very proud of. I still like that paper. That's a wonderful story. Um... Now, as an economic historian, I have always put uh, great emphasis on the factors of production, land, and labor. 
And you extend that a bit. You but you say that uh, in fact that land and and the fact that it was so inexpensive in Canada relative to Europe that this factor alone can explain the source of some of the key differences between the various settler societies that emerged in Canada relative to their European counterparts. Can you explain your argument to us? Yes, I am saying that. I think that uh, there are all sorts of things were changed as people settled down in, in new settings overseas. There were some indigenous people around, the winters were cold and long. Uh, there were wild animals in the forest that people hadn't seen. But the most basic changes were two, I think. One was to affect the, the vertical structure, the hierarchy of the of European society. And it was affected primarily by just what you're talking about. The, uh, the, the change abruptly changed relative value of land and labor. In, in Western Europe, in, throughout the period we're, we're talking about, land was scarce and expensive, and people who controlled land were in a position to be relatively prosperous. People who had only their, their labor to, uh, uh, to contribute to the market were going to be poor. They were going to live at the margins of this society. They were going to be one step away from the wandering, begging, uh, begging poor. You know, you get into many parts of Europe and you see those huge estates with miles and miles of stone walls around them. And there you see it in a nutshell. Those walls are built by people whose labor is, is worth almost nothing. People are paying, the owners of the land are paying a pittance for that labor because there's so much of it, so much of it around. In the new world, this relationship is reversed. There's an abundance of land, at least initially. Land is relatively cheap. And because the population is low, labor costs are, are, have risen, has risen somewhat. By the time you get to Petit Nation, that's no longer the case. But in the early, early years, it, it was. Labor costs compared to, compared to, to, to Europe were relatively, isolated, relatively high. These differences favor ordinary folk. If they could survive the, the trauma, really, of pioneering, of taking on and clearing the forest, if they could get through that, uh, they were left with a, an opportunity for family-centered sufficiency, and often not very much more than that. These are not subsistence farms, of course. They're producing some modest surplus for sale, but their primary purpose is the perpetuation, the feeding of and perpetuation of, of, of families, and they could do that. They could do that. And, and so you get, say, in Acadia, the population, there are only 300 people who come to Acadia. Uh, and by 1755, when the Acadians are deported, there are 10 or 12,000 Acadians. The population is growing very rapidly. It's growing very rapidly because Acadian women are marrying young, because the, the birth rate is, is, is high, and because a high percentage of those uh, children are surviving to adulthood. And all of that is happening because there's a, an, an opportunity there, because it is possible for um, a peasant society to establish and support itself. It's going to be a, a temporary opportunity. They're gonna, I mean, it's, in this case, the Acadians were deported. If they hadn't been, they were going to face a land problem before long. But there, what this does is discourage the penetration of the elite. The la land and wealth is, is, is having as difficulty with, the, with these settings. And... Uh, 
and a, and a, and a peasantry can uh, can reproduce itself. I don't want to argue that these were egalitarian societies. Of course, they're not. There's a social range within them. There are people who are prosperous and there are people who are desperately poor. But compared to the European range, uh, the, uh, the uh, these are the social range here is is hugely hugely constricted, and the real wealth is is gone. And the other change that that uh, is basic to all of this is that Europe at this time is a patchwork of local cultures. You didn't have to travel very far before the land began to change, the look of the land began to change, before the accents that people used changed. People lived within local societies. They knew themselves within the, these, these, uh, these contexts. They, they viewed outsiders, people who wandered in from the outside as strangers, not quite to be trusted. Uh, but in migration is 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 mixing up people. People are crossing the Atlantic from different cells, different different regional backgrounds. So there's a a a, a mixing of a variety of European local cultures, and and so the the reproduction of local regional cultures is not possible. What you get is an amalgam of different European regional ways. Now, after a time, of course, as the years go by, you begin to create distinctive local regional cultures in, in these New World settings too. But the initial, the initial impetus on both is to, in both these ways, is to level somewhat the social hierarchy and to change the spatial composition of the population. And these are fundamental changes and they're operating widely. They're operating widely, and you can see them see them at play through these different set, these different settings. Now, your chapter on indigenous space traces the history of reserves that detach the indigenous peoples within the territory of British Columbia from most of their land. Uh, most of us are not very aware of this history. Can you give us a very quick summary of it and the consequences of that history? Oh gosh, Greg. I mean, I've written a book on that. You want me to get it into a minute or two. Well, um, look, the basic thing that happens is that Native people are dispossessed of, uh, of almost all their land. In British Columbia, they're left with one-third of one percent of the land of British Columbia. And it's not in a few large reserves. It's in a scatter of exceedingly small reserves spread across British Columbia. By and large, people were left in their own territories. They weren't forced to, as in so many parts of the United States, forced uh, to move into sort of uh, uh, large amalgamations of indigenous people. Uh, they're left in their own territories, but, on, but they have no more than toeholds on that uh, land. The effect of this on indigenous people is to make it in the long run exceedingly difficult to earn a reasonable living because they can no longer get at the former subsistence systems. Because increasingly the land that, they, that is no longer theirs is taken over by capital, is controlled by the state, uh, is controlled by, uh, by settlers in some cases, uh, passes out of their capacity to manage. And so what native people are, have been forced to do in British Columbia is to try and figure out how to make livelihoods in these constrained, bottled up geographical circumstances where they have tiny patches of land, where for a time they can get at some of their old land uses off the reserve, 
but often they can't because other people are, are there and other rules are, uh, are there. They can also find short-term employment in, uh, in new activities. They can work in the canneries. They can work in the forests. They can work in the, uh, in, in the mines. They can work on, if, if they're being built in their vicinity, they can work on, on the railways. But these are short, usually short-term employments. Work comes and goes in these places. Uh, employment is tied to the international market for uh, commodities. It's tied to changing technologies of, uh, of uh, production. Uh, it's changed to the inter tied to, to changing the international business cycle. And so Native people find themselves in a thoroughly uncertain, changed matrix of constrained relationships. Sometimes they get along in these circumstances and life is not too, too bad. And sometimes they don't. And when they don't, they're starving. So it's a, uh, it's a precarious battle to keep going. Well, Colt, I want to thank you for trying to compress that in just a few minutes. I know that you've written an entire book on it, and uh, it's, it's something that uh, Canadians have heard a bit about in, in general terms, but not the details of it. And so that's why I asked the question. It's important. It's important. Uh, we do need to understand what is going on. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're most welcome. My guest today was Cole Harris. He is the author of Abounded Land, Reflections on Settler Colonialism in Canada, published by UBC Press in 2020. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.chaplainsociety.ca where you can become a subscribing member. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. We want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of Ottawa Press, and today's press, UBC Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on January 22nd, 2021, in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt. <laughs>